Greetings, Amigops, and Top Teners everywhere. Welcome back to another edition of Top 10 with Kyle and Mike. I am your co-host, Kyle. Opposite me today, as he is every week, is your co-host, Mike. Today, we are going to be venturing into Quadrant 2 of (laughs) of one of our new podcast series. Mike and I both know what this topic is. I'm going to let him explain a little bit more in detail what we're doing. Once we do that, we are going to talk about a top 10 of that. We're going to vigorously debate it until we have arrived at a definitive list. So, Mike, explain to the good listeners what part two of this series is going to be all about. All right, K-Dog. Like you said, you know the topic. I know the topic. Much more importantly than our knowledge of the topic is the listeners' knowledge of the topic. Because if the listeners were tuned in last week or two weeks ago or whenever we broadcast these things, this is a little bit of radio magic, (laughs) we will be exploring the three quadrants (laughs) of J.K. Rowling's Magical Beasts. So this week we will be exploring what I believe we have labeled Quadrant 2. Is this Quadrant 2, Kyle? This is Quadrant 2. Okay, so Quadrant 2 are creatures that J.K.R. did not originally create, but which she adapted for her Harry Potter works, books 1 through 7 primarily. So we're going to be talking about those sorts of creatures that you would have heard in other folklore and mythology, but which she has made very uniquely her own. Yes, and as we alluded to in that previous podcast, this is a long list and so a lot of these are ones you say oh yeah i've heard of these and and various tales and other works of art a lot of these you'll think that she invented on her own because her knowledge of mythology and lore is deep and so she's passed a lot of these off as kind of her own at least she did to me so it'd be fun to kind of go through which ones she didn't all right so why don't we uh why don't we just roll into this thing yeah number 10 All right, number 10 is one that gets penalized slightly because we're focusing really only on one example of it, which I think is a little bit of a theme throughout this. It's important that we balance how much we find one particular example compelling versus the whole species. So this is the three-headed dog. Mm. So I don't know that there's actually a species name for uh, our good friend Fluffy, but the three-headed dog Fluffy in this story is very clearly influenced by the roman myth of Kerberos, which is the three-headed dog that guards the entrance to the underworld now i'm not sure if there's a greek counterpart there might be i might this might even be the greek one but i'm pretty sure this is the roman one and to me what's really cool about jkr's version of Kerberos in the story is that she's nodding to this really neat rich tradition and she's showing the influences that she's taking in, but she's changed the name from Kerberos to Fluffy, which I think is really cool because a lot of fantasy engages a little too seriously with the myths of the past, which oftentimes are kind of ridiculous. So I really like that she takes something a little bit snooty and takes it, but then makes it her own with the goofy name of Fluffy. Yeah, she has this trend of taking things and making them identifiable, but also kind of adding unique twists on them and Oftentimes those twists, we talked about it with Hagrid and, and Thestrals and, and some other things, how something that's seemingly terrifying she redeems. And Fluffy's a really great example of that. How, But like Kerberos guards the river Styx and the entrance to the underworld, Fluffy guards the Sorcerer's Stone. There's a common thread, but putting, her to, putting him, him, I think, to sleep with a harp yeah. and naming him Fluffy, yeah. that's, that's, that's JKR's stamp all over it. Absolutely. And it's funny, now that you were talking about this, this is reminding me of another kind of similar example, which is Filch. His name's Argus Filch, which is named after the 100-eyed Watcher. And it's just funny, like, Filch never catches anybody doing anything. And that's, and that's just classic JK, is to engage with the snoot, but subvert it at the same time. Yes, and that is a theme that we will be exploring many, many times on this list. Yeah, so that's that's number 10. Number nine are the Vila. Mm-hmm. So the real life Vila, which are actually in certain dialects, certain spots, actually just called Vila. It's the Slavic wood nymph. So these are mythical creatures from the Slavic heritage who, like nymphs in many cultures, were known for luring men into the forest. What's really interesting is there's basically no change. 
they're known for their waving blonde hair. They are known to drive men crazy with just a look. In fact, it, it kind of expands a little bit, the myth itself, that women who look upon the Vila become so jealous that they kill themselves. So it's a, it's a very specific mythology that's basically imitated shot for shot by JK. But as usual, she does some little twist on it. And in this case, the twist that I see is in giving us a fully fleshed out Vila in Fleur. Obviously, she's only part Vila, but I think it's really nice that she gives us a little bit more depth to this character who's very clearly one dimensional. Um, on the other, on the other piece of what I find so compelling about the Vila is the whole incident at the Quidditch World Cup. Because JK is never afraid of making fun of the foolishness of her male characters. Because in many cases, her male characters act like total fools. Uh, Ronald B. Weasley, chief among them. And his behavior at the Quidditch World Cup, along with Harry's, is ridiculous. But nobody rises to the level of the referee, Hassan Mustafa, <laughs> who is so utterly beguiled and distracted by the Vila that he essentially forgets to referee the game. So I love the Vila. I think they're good for uh, for those kind of two main reasons. One, the the redemption via Fleur, and two, just the the humor of the male characters. Yeah, one other. It's classic JK, but like they're the Vila in the books are slightly more like it's it's humorous, like the referee stopping the game and like twirling his mustache, yeah. and Harry and Ron like googly eyes. <laughs> Whereas in the mythology, it's definitely more sinister. Like she lures in men with yeah. the intention of killing them and then another part of the mythology that she carried over is that when they're angry or i guess in mythology when they reveal themselves they're basically bird creatures and if you remember the there's something that upsets them maybe it's like a fowl or a rogue bludger at the quidditch world cup and they turn into like these scaly bird creatures which i think is cool i think it's interesting that like the lesser known the mythology is the less she i think feels the need to tinker with it because the vila are pretty much pulled right from admittedly like really obscure mythology this is one that i thought she had made up on her own totally on both counts one i agree with your point about the renown of the mythology and two this was one i thought she had made up but it's interesting this also is now making me think of the more obvious route which would be the harpy like you could you could you could call them harpies and it would be a pretty accessible mythology for people and it's one that i think you know a lot of people are familiar with but to make it vila I think I think the cynical interpretation would be that it's a way of sort of avoiding that initial level of scrutiny and hoping that people think you made it up yourself. But with the background we have on JK, that doesn't seem likely. It seems much more likely that she's trying to allow you to develop a firsthand relationship with this creature and then afterwards recognize the depth of it. Because I think not calling them something like a harpy allows you to engage with the creature's learn about them from the story, and then compare them to the actual myth. I think if I had to hazard a guess, I would say that she did some research into Bulgarian mythology and really liked this version of it. Yeah, that is that is probably more likely the direct cause, but I think that there's also... I think she also is conscientious in these stories of not forcing you to bring too much baggage, but I think you're probably right in this case. I think it's probably somewhere in between. Yeah. Yes, yes. All right, so that brings us to number eight, the unicorn. Mm -hmm. So my focus, as you can tell, is I was trying to find what's the real life, you know, mythology, and then what are some of the changes that she made to these ones. Mm -hmm. So the unicorn, and I had forgotten about this. I think I'd learned this in school, but the unicorn in a lot of mythological systems can only be captured by a virgin. And so in some mythological systems they would hunt unicorns by sending in virgin sending virgins into the woods to lure the unicorns and then killing them but interestingly there doesn't seem to be this same theme that we get from the harry potter series that slaying a unicorn is this great misdeed in fact a lot of the mythology that i was turning up in my research was talking about how unicorns are very mischievous uh, and haughty and proud and they're not they're not viewed the same way that they are in the Harry Potter story. So I think it was a really interesting decision for her to take what is a very well-known creature. In fact, a creature that does have a lot of that baggage we were talking about 
and introduce it in the first book of her series with such a, a major change. But what I think is so cool is it very quickly sets the stage for the things that Voldemort is willing to do to cling to life. Because we learn very early that <laughs> drinking the blood of unicorn curses you to a half-life, a cursed life, which is obviously a long way from the Horcrux stuff we get later. But it primes you for, for this whole this whole storyline. Yeah, I think it's fitting that really the only time we get a serious look at the unicorn is in the first book. I think probably very intentionally because she's kind of turned the unicorn into a symbol of of innocence. And yeah. that's kind of what Harry is at this point in the book. I think that's mm. probably intentional. Yeah. But I also, I, I think what's cool is that she's like expanded the unicorn's uses in the wizarding world, like unicorn hair yeah. in wands. And then I, I, in Half-Blood Prince, I love when like Slughorn is there for Aragog's funeral and sees all the unicorn hair, like trussed up in Hagris's hut. Like it's just wired and like he freaks out because the unicorn hair is so valuable. Yeah. Like the level of mythological they, respect they have even in the wizarding world, is really neat. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it it harkens back to that conversation we had on the last episode, talking about what the hell is going on in the Dark Forest. I think that the presence of at least a couple unicorns, because I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, in the first one, there's reference to unicorns being killed, and then there's the one we find. So there's at least a couple. There's a lot of shit running around in that forest. <laughs> yes. Well, and the fact that he has, like, a whole, like, swath of unicorn hair when a single strand is considered very valuable, like, it kind of alludes to the number, like, maybe a yeah. herd of unicorns. Yeah. Yeah, I like that at eight. All right, so that's number eight, which means we're going to do number seven. That's right. See, I got you there. I'm back on my cues. It's glad to see you back on on the old horse, on the old unicorn, what, Mike. I am back on the old unicorn. Uh, so number <laughs> seven, <laughs> I don't think I don't, I don't like that at on all. On the back, on the back of the unicorn, on the back of the unicorn. Number seven are the Mer people. Yes. So the Mer people are interesting because I, I don't know the degree to which J.K. has actually changed the mythology of the Mer person. But the on-screen interpretation of the Mer people is probably the most lasting image that I and most of us have from the series. And I love how different they are. Now, as I said, in the book, their description is not quite as clear from a physical standpoint. There's definitely reference to green hair and I think the teeth, if I remember correctly, are described as being like very sharp. Mm-hmm. But it's not clear that they're quite as fishy as they are in the movie. I like both decisions. I like sort of leaving them a little bit blanker and leaving your brain to do a little bit of the work on their actual physical characteristics. And I also like having them be a little more bestial than we picture them. So there's not, there's not a ton to the Mer people from the point of view of magical abilities or anything like that but they do a few nice things one is to expand the world of the lake two is to show us what makes Dumbledore such a great statesman in showing that he speaks this incredibly difficult to speak language and I think three the final thing is it just it points to the communities that exist outside of the wizard wizarding community like there are really robust and full communities both of humanoids like mer people and things that we would more broadly classify as beasts no oh, absolutely i love the i think my favorite thing about the mer people or one of my favorite bits of them in the book is in at the end of half-blood prince at dumbledore's funeral yes i think they they have like a song or whatever that they describe as being you know really beautiful and i don't know i just I really, really like the imagery of like, it's less that they're, because the, the, the conventional idea of a visualization of a mermaid that it's strictly humanoid upper half with like a really exaggerated fishtail. 13th year type situation. Exactly. Or maybe even the little mermaid. Yeah. Like, it just, it makes, it makes it feel like 
to human. Like it's just a slight variation on human. And this is like very, very separate from human, which I love. It makes me think of the, uh, the fish guy from the shape of water. I know not that many people saw that movie, but like, I love that, that <laughs> image. And like, that's kind of how I picture mer people when I think about them. Do you think moaning Myrtle has uh human ghost encounters with the fish people down there? A la shape of water. It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't. Yeah, she she definitely she definitely exhibits human interest. Yes. Yeah, in spite of the fact that she's a ghost. Yeah. And if the shape of water is any indication, those mer people are excellent lovers. It would it's, it seems that way. Yeah. The, the last thing is just I'd like the idea that like that image that like a human a very humanized image of a mer person could still come about like. Like there's a dilution of what they actually look like when someone like someone's seen a mer person and then they try yeah. to describe it and like that's what comes out and so you have this like weird visualize a weird idea in your head of what they look like and then they don't. At that's all. a really great point. It's sort of like the conversation we've had about that Batman show, the right. like short movie where the kids are all describing what they saw and if you just take their description, if you were just to to quite literally listen to their words and then draw out what they said all would actually make pretty good sense and if somebody were to try to describe what these sort of beastly creatures look like the most accessible definition would probably be something like a person with a tail right like a person that could swim really fast and like had some scales but had arms and like a head you know like yeah i don't know i like it and they're like a super reclusive race like it's not like every wizard has encountered a mer person well i'm glad you brought that back up because i think it brings us to one other point which is related to the dumbledore point i made earlier but it's it's a good show of how important it is to build consensus and build friendships across race across time across place in the harry potter universe because dumbledore gains a lot of information a lot of companionship from the mer people now, you can remind me whether this is a movie creation. I think it exi- it happens in the book too, but are the mer people in the books in in the book the ones who tell Dumbledore that Harry tried to save the other hostages yeah. under the lake? So, I'm glad that wasn't just a movie creation because that's such a great idea because you know they wouldn't have told anybody else no matter what happened whether it was good for Dumbledore or bad for Dumbledore's contestant. He's the only one who's getting that information. And it's because he's taken the time to get to know them or people. And they wouldn't tell anybody else because they need that trust. Yep. And JK does this over and over again, like repeatedly emphasizes the importance of understanding different cultures and this creates a completely different species. And that's like a, a subtle way that she does it. Not, maybe not so subtle, but. Yeah, but agreed, an important way she does it, for sure. So that brings us through number seven, which would typically bring us to our not top three. Uh, At least from my standpoint, this is a little bit of a tough not top three to work with. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about this one. I guess you could just pick, like, three, like, unpleasant creatures, like, like, generally negatively viewed creatures from mythology but we don't have to. yeah I, if you've got something i'm interested but i didn't i didn't really i don't want to i don't want to ruin anything that's potentially in your top like your top ones so we'll, we'll we can come back to it or just skip it okay so number six is the hippogriff so the hippogriff suffers in my view a little bit from this issue of we met we basically meet one get to know him quite well, but we don't really have a lot of exposure to what the Hippogriff is more broadly in the Harry Potter universe. We also don't really necessarily get a ton on what makes the Hippogriff itself so special. We do understand why we like Buckbeak so much slash Witherwings. We get to know why we like that particular one. But I think I, I think that the Hippogriff still deserves a high spot for two main reasons. One is that it is a really freaking cool creature. Regardless of the fact that it's a pretty straight adaptation of the Hippogriff from mythology, it's still pretty darn cool and I'm glad it got included. And two is that Buckbeak represents so much in his short time in this series. It, you know, he helps 
demonstrate Hagrid's boundless love for all creatures kind of serves as a parallel for Hagrid in being a misunderstood creature, the same way a lot of these creatures stand kind of in Hagrid's place, but also is a really cool bridge between Harry and Sirius. I think that's one of my favorite chapters in this series is seeing seeing Buckbeak transition from Harry's friend to Sirius's friend and seeing them share that bond is pretty cool. Oh, absolutely. It is kind of like an inflection point in Prisoner of Azkaban. I think one of my, my favorite thing about the Hippogriff is that, and tell me if in your research you found that this is not a JKR thing, but I think the key thing about Hippogriffs is the way that you have to earn their respect. The way that you, you make eye contact and you bow, and if the hippogriff deems you worthy, it'll bend its knee and basically give you permission. Like, it, you, it sees you as an equal. I think it it's an, another really important lesson in respect for different creatures. Mm-hmm. And I also think that it just, like, is another one of these subtle, like, reinforcing points in the series where by... If you just, like, kind of looked at the numbers on Harry, he's not necessarily always super impressive. But there are these subtle things that, like, separate him from the pack. One is, like, the way that he's immediately accepted by Buckpeak. There's a lot of other small things, like the Sword of Gryffindor stuff and the Patronus and, like, a lot of different things. But this is a really early one. It's, like, a quick thing that sets Harry apart. And I know a lot of people don't love this scene and, like, think it's kind of tacky. But the flying over the lake in Prisoner of Azkaban movie is... I think, like, for me, one of the very best scenes in all of those movies because it, it's, like, the first really amazing, like, panning wide shot of the Hogwarts grounds. And to yep. me, it perfectly captures, like, the feeling of belonging to this incredible, like, wide open, vast world of magic. Yeah. Buckbeak's on the cover of Prisoner of Azkaban. I just think, and, and like, and most people don't know that a hippogriff is something that JK didn't invent herself. So I, the, the hippogriff has a very special place in my heart for all of those reasons. Yeah. I think it's incredible. I totally agree with your take on that scene. I've heard people make fun of it. I'm not in the make fun of it camp. I think it's a great scene. I think you're right. It expands what magic can be. I think it's the I love magic scene, but done well. Like, I think it's that same idea. You see him like, wow, I love magic. This is this is what it can give us in a really cool way. So I'm totally with you on that. And I also think, importantly, that was when they totally redid what the grounds look like. Yep. And you're right. That's one of our first looks at what the new grounds look like. But I think you raise a really good point about the respect thing. I think you're right. I didn't see that elsewhere. And I neglected to, to say that. So that's a really important point, that she added this feature about respecting the hippogriff and having to earn the ability to fly on it. And I think the the really obvious parallel is between Harry and a young Tom Riddle. I just rewatched the first movie and the differences between his acceptance of his letter and the Tom Riddle acceptance of his letter to Hogwarts is so, so stark. And I think that this is a great example. Were Tom Riddle in Hagrid's class being told to bow to a hippogriff? He would never. He would probably try to imperious the hippogriff, which probably doesn't even work. I'm not even sure that like <laughs> imperiousing an animal, but he would try. And it's so it's so deeply uh, indicative of what makes Harry so special when compared to wizards who are much more traditionally powerful than him. And that's his true strength. That's the whole that's the whole reason behind these, this whole series of books. And yeah, the fact that the hippograph is hippogriff is emblematic of that i think is puts it's a strong strong case for it but anyways absolutely so number five um number five is the basilisk Mm -hmm. so the basilisk is in kind of our world's mythology very similar to the origins of the basilisk in the harry potter story which is that it's a uh, rooster egg hatched under a toad And I think the I think if I remember correctly, the cockatrice is a toad hatched under a rooster. But they they end up being kind of similar creatures. The biggest changes that JKR made were to make the basilisk quite a bit larger. And then the movies made that basilisk <laughs> quite a bit larger again. 
Because if I if if my reading of Chamber of Secrets is accurate, the basilisk that we meet in the book is like a, a really really large. It's obviously it's it's sort of this serpent like creature. It's not just a straight snake snake. But if I were to if I were to estimate, I would say it was certainly no wider across than my torso. Well, don't forget, Mike, that it's navigating the castle in pipes, and like, just, right? There are a lot of big pipes. I'm sure there's a lot of shit. Yes, but like the like if you really think about it, the size of the basilisk in the movie, like what what pipe is that thing getting through? You yeah, know? it's like a one of those precast concrete tubes, perhaps. Right. So yeah, so I, so those are like the big changes that get made from her from our real world mythology to her book to the movie is it got very much larger. But the other thing, the more important change is that it can be controlled by a parcel mouth, which is the defining characteristic of the basilisk that we meet in the books in the book and then in the movie. I don't know. This one feels like it's kind of there's. I can talk my way around it a, a lot of ways, but really it's two things. One, it's a really cool, enormous snake. Two, it's associated with Voldemort in a really cool way. Like, I don't know. That's the sales pitch. We could talk more about it, but that's the, the, them's the bullet points. No, like, there's just an undeniable coolness about it. And it's one of the, one of the series' best just monsters. Like, yeah, there's something cool about monster stories. And like, this is a lurking evil, kill you with a look monster it's just it's scary i don't know i think this is another one that like i didn't really have much of a notion of beforehand Mm -hmm. so to have and then and that's true also in this world like hermione has to explain like the mythology of the basilisk to ron and harry alike i i don't know and the fact that like our exposure to the basilisk is different than many of these other creatures and that we see and hear its effects for an entire book before it's revealed to us what's actually going on. And so there's a sense of satisfaction in knowing that. Mm-hmm. I don't, people like to kind of, I know like people, when people say that Chamber of Secrets is the worst book, it's like saying, you know, it's the worst of seven incredible books. But I, I as a kid, Chamber of Secrets was always my favorite and like a big same. Absolutely the same. I've, I've heard this movement, but I agree. It was my favorite growing up too. It's not my favorite any longer, but, but yeah. at the time it was because I, and I think in large part because of the coolness of the basilisk. It's just, it's just, it's just awesome. Yeah. Agreed. Some things, some things just are. <laughs> yeah. The basilisk is one of those, I think. Yeah. Uh, in a similar vein, number four is, a great adaptation of something that is undeniably cool and done in a pretty undeniably cool way. Uh, and that's the dragon. Mm-hmm. So she takes sort of the Western rendering of the dragon generally as her inspiration, the four legs and the wings type situation. Uh, the movies alter that ever so slightly in that the wings kind of take over for the second set of legs, I believe, that they're kind of more directly winged creatures, whereas in the books, I believe they're described as that really sort of like traditional Welsh dragon with like four legs and then wings. To me, the the cool stuff about the dragons are that we really get to know a couple of them. Um, Obviously, we get to know Norbert slash Norberta really well. In one of the underrated, because it didn't make the movies, little secret missions of the whole series like that to me is the the whole get norbert to romania mission in sorcerer's stone that's a pretty cool little look at what happens after hours at hogwarts so that's a really cool plot line that i really enjoyed we also get to know the ukrainian iron belly quite well it's obviously a short relationship that we have with it but we see a lot about the cruelty that it's subjected to. And I think through that, learn a good deal about it. Also, just if you can cast your mind back to when these books were coming out, that was the dragon illustration that launched a million discussions because it's like, what the hell is this dragon? Why are its eyes all milky and white? And like, what's going on? Ended up being a relatively mo- you know, minor plot point, but speaks to the cachet of the dragon generally speaking that it that it caused such a ruckus dragons are another creature that are just cool if a dragon shows up you're gonna you're gonna pay attention 
You might yeah, even do you're a podcast. You're going to have a good time. You might even yeah. do a podcast ranking the, your top 10 favorites. I, it's I, possible. I think JK didn't do a ton to make the dragon her own by like changing characteristics about it. But I think her huge accomplishment with the dragon in these stories is making them so... Having created so many like varieties of them and making them feel unique. I'm so glad you said that because that's my fundamental feeling on what she did well with this too. I, I wrote them down because I wanted to to list them. Kyle, this is I was gonna write them down and I was like, you know, I can just read them off at some point. This is exactly what I wanted. Yep, beautiful. So <laughs> the ones that show up in the book, you already mentioned the Ukrainian Iron Belly is the one that's in Gringotts. The obviously the Norwegian Ridgeback we know. Norbert is a Norwegian Ridgeback. Probably the most famous one, and I think the one that mm-hmm. it almost made our actual list of dragons is the Hungarian yeah. Horntail. Mm-hmm. I believe the other two dragons that were in the Triwizard Tournament are the Chinese Fireball and the Common Welsh Green. And the Swedish Short Snout. And the Swedish Short Snout. So I think those are all the ones that appear in the books, and they all have little things about them that make them unique and cool. I don't know if we have time to go into all of it, but oftentimes it's right in the name, the Ukrainian Iron Belly. It's kind of clear yeah. what's that all about. But mm-hmm. the horn tail, the ridgeback, the short snout. Yeah. It's really cool that they're so locally focused. Every single one of them has a, a geographic location attached to it, which I think is really neat. And some more that appear in the Fantastic Beast book, but I don't think show up in the books at all. The Antipodian Opali, mm. the Hebridean Black, yeah, the Peruvian Viper Tooth, yeah, that just sounds awesome, very cool, and the Romanian Longhorn, like it's just yeah. cool, totally. I think it's I think it's really cool because it it's sort of this indexing tendency, like this this desire to put them all together in one place. It's just cool to have a list because. Realistically, there probably is a North American unicorn versus a South American unicorn versus a this unicorn. Like there probably are those things, but the taxonomy of the of the dragon is so much greater and it's really cool cuz I think it points to that system likely existing for all these other creatures too. Yeah, exactly. And you only see it spelled out in the case of dragons cuz it was kind of a necessity for the story, but Exactly. Yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. So that brings us through number four. So I, I think this might be a situation also where we might want to leave the honorable mentions to the end. Yeah, let's because point. we'll see how things shake out exactly. All right. So number three, one that you and I were both quite convinced JK had made up the Boggart. Yes. So really cool. Uh, I found out just today that that origin of the term boggart is closely related to the origin of the boogeyman. Yeah. As well as the boggle, which appears in Chronicles of Narnia. So that's just pretty cool. Yeah. But this is perhaps the most JK shift of all, which is that in, I think it's, I want to say that this is I think this is Welsh mythology primarily, but I, yeah. I think it's a lot of the, the British Isles. She's taken a, a creature that has a concrete form, and the concrete form is basically to just be kind of a, a somewhere ranging from a rascal who messes with your stuff to like somebody who really hurts you, but like comes into your room at night and tickles your feet and or kills you at night. So she takes something that's concrete that people are fearing. And then she writes this whole sort of mythology about how, no, this this boogeyman doesn't actually have a shape. It's just you projecting your fears onto this thing. And that's what quite a bit of this story is about. And it's really elegant in in that she introduces it in the book that is most explicitly about fear. Yeah, no, and it's it's another, like the hippogriff, it's another place in the same book where we start to see what makes Harry so special. The fact mm-hmm. that he fears fear itself above all things. Lupin spells it straight out, like, that's impressive. For yeah. a kid, what is he, 13 at the time? 
Mm-hmm. I think what I love so much about this interpretation of the Bogart is that, like, you said it. Like, it's the boogeyman. It's a boggle. The only thing that I found, in, like, looking this up that's unique to the this, like, this general mythology is that the creature is very tied to, like, a, a, a place, like a home, and it doesn't want to leave. And, like, what exactly that form is is up for debate, and I think that's so cool is that J.K. honed in on that one thing that seems to be unique. It's a home pest. It's in a wardrobe. Yeah. It's under a bed, just like the boogeyman is. It's in a closet. Mm-hmm. What it is exactly, it's whatever you're most afraid of. It's the thing that's in your closet. It's yeah. so brilliant. Yeah, it's amazing. I really, I also really like the idea that it it's a family situation because that obviously brings us to one of the better scenes in the books that was excised from the movies for some reason but the scene in order of the phoenix which put this on my list of unforgivable things which i'm sure i've already bitched about on this show but um how you cut several of the memories from half-blood prince i don't know i'm not gonna get on my soapbox just short just quick little soapbox that is unforgivable and cutting out all of the house cleaning for order of the phoenix also unforgivable whatever but the molly weasley sees her whole family dying as she's trying to get rid of the boggart scene in order of the phoenix is it's just fantastic and to me it emphasizes what you are getting at which is that it's it's a community family thing it's it's a shared sense of guilt and a shared sense of fear this isn't just molly alone this is her experiencing a family trauma and it's it's a really compelling idea that it's a part of where they are at the time that if they were at the borough or if they were somewhere else there likely wouldn't be this bogger but it's there at grimald place yeah it's she uses the bogger effectively in plotting to kind of really give us an insight into a lot of the different characters even if you don't know it at the time like Lupin with the with the moon, and yep. it's also a clever bit of foreshadowing with Ron with the spider, and it's yeah. a source of humor. Neville with his grandma and Snape. Like I love the bogger and was shocked to find that it wasn't something that she made up. But like this is the closest we come to her like really making it up because her Agreed. interpretation is so different. This one is a little bit more like she took the name and then did her own thing because right. she's so inverted the way it behaves. Right. I love it. Yeah. So number two, interestingly, I would put somewhere on that spectrum of really change the creature up. Uh, number two is the Phoenix. Yeah. So in Googling around, the qualities she ascribes to the Phoenix in the book are pretty much, at least as far as I could tell, her own creations. So yeah. the rebirth, the rebirth thing is, is what the Phoenix is. That's, that's what it's known for as it bursts into flame is in his reborn. And that's the obvious touchstone that she kind of hits on right away. But the lifts heavy loads and has healing tears. And then I think most lastingly and beautifully, because at least on some level, you could criticize those as being like a little deus ex machina-y, is the lament. Because the Phoenix song, the way it stirs people and gives them strength, it, it's not explicitly described as magic. But I think it's safe to say that that is a form of magic. Yeah. At, at the very least in JK's conception of it. So I loved our time with Fox. Really loved our time with Fox. And I was really, I was really pleased to find out that she had given him a lot of his powers. Yeah. No, I was curious about that one. And that's fun. It, it, I think to me, it, it feels like she has had a really strong affinity for the Phoenix and so wanted to to add a lot to it correct me if i'm wrong but the reason that fox is able to find harry in the chamber of secrets is because he defends dumbledore or is that why he's able to pull the sword out i think it's both yeah i like that link like the fact that harry defending dumbledore lets fox find him i think like shows the power of the connection and that's something i really like about fox Total. Let me just pause for a second to make sure that I'm as precise as possible so we don't get Quinn up our <laughs> respective tookuses. I believe that Harry's loyalty to Dumbledore is what calls Fox to the chamber, as you said. Harry's 
being a true Gryffindor yeah. is what gets the sword out of the hat. Those notions are quite connected. Continue. I think that's an important distinction to make. <laughs> yes. <But> the, the, <laughs> the point is that Fox has a unique connection. And yeah. I also think it's like she reserves wand lore for the most powerful and like sacred of magical creatures. And it's cool that Phoenix yeah. tails, Phoenix feathers go into wands. It's also just amazing that it's Fox that provides the feather for Harry and Voldemort's wands. Like, when do we find that out? I, it's, it's relatively late that you find out yeah. that it's Fox that gives, that's in Harry's wand. It's even later, I believe, that you find out that it's a twin core. I think you're right about that. Cause I, I as I recall, it was, it was, I wouldn't even call it a subject of speculation because I think pretty much everybody knew that it, it was Fox. It, it was too, it yeah. felt too pat. Like it must have been Fox, but I still remember that being a pretty cool moment when you realized that it was in fact Fox who gave her, you know, the tail feathers. Yep. And one other cool thing I love about the Phoenix in these stories is that like, we, we don't really encounter any Phoenix, but Fox, like even in this yeah. world, we see a lot of dragons. Yes. We see a lot of unicorns even. There's just Fox. Like the rarity of the Phoenix, even in this magical universe universe, definitely lends some cachet to it. Totally. I'm now as you say that, given the rarity of the creature, I it's sort of like way I it's just like how I wanna know about Alfred's time in the SIS. <laughs> uh I also would like to see, I'd kind of like to see Fox's time before knowing Dumbledore and like finding out how they meet each other. Cause so I picture something very Indiana Jones. I would definitely watch a, a Fox, a Fox spinoff. Yeah, I would too. I, uh, now that we've just said that, like it's very obvious that we're going to get this story in one of the Fantastic Beasts movies, right? Yeah, and we must. Cause I, I, I would yeah. think. Yeah, we must. Fox. Cause it's gotta be, it, it almost certainly has to be a Newt's Commander connection. Yeah. Well, now actually, well, now I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's, I hope they get out of a jam together. Like, he, like Dumbledore realizes that that really cool thing, which we haven't yet mentioned, where he can, uh, like slam his hands together and disappear in a flash of flame, which is just, uh, that scene is so great. That is such a great scene. I'm it's, so glad that they had, they had Shacklebolt deliver the, you've got to admit. He's got style. You may not rather than Phineas Nigellus. Yeah, you have. That is not only one of the greatest lines, (laughs) but it is also one of the greatest deliveries in the entire series. Yeah, Kingsley Shacklebolt doesn't get nearly the room to run that he that he deserves, but he takes that moment and just grabs it by the balls. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So I, but I hope that I hope that like Dumbledore is running away from like. A bunch of, a bunch of, you know, jungle elves or something. And like, he's like, let's get out of here! And just slams his hands and he and Fox disappear. And he's like, oh, that worked? I hope that after he's gone, it's revealed that a younger Kingsley Shacklebolt was there with eyes like wide open. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that would be so great. He's like on vacation with his family and he's got like his camera up. And it's just like the kid who's like, Something amazing, I guess. Jogging drops and he slowly takes his sunglasses off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's gonna happen. Let's get on let's, the horn. Yeah, I don't know who to call, but let's call yeah. somebody. <laughs> All right, so that brings us to number one, which I'm imagining that you've you've got figured out by now. Number one, if you were to turn your book to page three hundred and ninety-four, is the werewolf. Interesting. Oh, that was not what you thought was number one. Did you have something else? I wasn't sure what you were going to have at number one, but this. Okay. uh, Yeah. Talk to me about the werewolf. Uh, the werewolf is interesting because this is one that she altered not at all. She made no alteration to the story of the werewolf. And what I think is neat is she uses her ability as the author to alter these myths at will to really interesting effect in a lot of different places. But I think what she does more interestingly is re-examine those creatures because I think that's, that is more in line with her, her kind of fundamental value as a writer is to re-examine things really intelligently. And so the werewolves in this story 
our good friends Bill, Lupin, Fenrir Greyback, and then I suppose to a certain degree Lavender Brown. Though I'm not sure what the deal is, what where she stands. If she's dead or I don't know if it's ever explicitly stated. But but they're not different than any werewolf that is out there in any myth, really. The they transition not at will, but at the full moon. They lose their sense. They become killing machines. But what's so fascinating is that it offers a really cool opportunity to explore the humanity of Lupin to point out the savagery of Fenrir Greyback in trying to infect people in intending to position himself near humans so that he can kill in beginning to seek out human flesh even when he hasn't transformed. Yeah, and take that, and this is one of those things that we can kind of talk about it, but it only develops over the course of reading the books. But the impact that his lycanthropy has on Lupin is very real. It's very strongly felt throughout the story. Like, I think in the movies a little bit, the stuff where Harry's pissed at Lupin for neglecting his duties as a husband slash, you know, expecting father... It doesn't, it doesn't ring quite as true as it does in the book, but in the book, you get a real sense of the burden that Lupin bears, that being a werewolf is just an incredibly difficult thing for him. It changed his entire life, and he's just one of the most gentle and loving and forgiving people in the whole story, in spite of his issues. And I think it's, it also is really interesting. It explores the way people who have a relationship with somebody who's either has some sort of physical or mental handicap or who has is going through something difficult how there's a legitimate argument to be made for telling that person you know you're okay we we all understand the way that Tonks tries to where she tries to tell him like listen I don't care I, I love you anyway like th- that argument that that view is really it's legitimate. And I think the book treats it as being legitimate, but there's also a legitimate view, which is, yeah, this is a, this, this is tough. People are not going to look at you the same way. This is a, this is a real handicap and I'm going to have to treat you a little bit differently. Like I I think the book treats both of those um, ways of dealing with Lupin very sensitively. And I think it ultimately points to the determination on how best to deal with this is, is up to Lupin. Yeah, no, it it's definitely the most subtle and like delved into social aspect of like the different ways that wizards choose to stratify each other like yeah. there, there's a lot of bigotry with regards to blood status and you're with you know like giants like half breeds like there's there are a lot of kind of marginalized people in wizarding society but it's never even close to explored as deeply it is with werewolves it's it's pretty interesting because like in in a lot of ways it's it's painted as like a disease like you can drink a wolfsbane potion and kind of live with a condition yeah but it doesn't matter <laughs> like the fact that the fact that 29 days in a month like he functions as a human being and can kind of deal with and finds ways to live around a condition the other day of the month doesn't matter. And house elves too is a great example. Like there are a lot of examples of this in the wizarding world, but to see it in a character that we know and love as much as Lupin and how it affects him, especially in deathly hallows when he has to grapple with like what it means to not just be a werewolf, but also be a husband and a father as a werewolf is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, so you're, you're right. Like, she doesn't change much about the werewolf. She just, like, really goes deeper into understanding, like, what that would mean for a person. Yeah, and it's interesting. I think it's sort of the inverse of that, uh, I, I don't forget what it's called, but whatever the Credence character is, where you're having some sort of emotional stress and it sort of causes your powers to go inward and, come out of the bad times or whatever. So that's a situation where you're having this external emotional trauma that you internalize and it causes issues with your magic. Whereas this is the opposite where you have this magical curse that's sort of inside of you. And as it comes out, that causes this great emotional trauma. And it's just, 
it's so well handled. It's so well handled because I think she really considers all of the implications of something like this. I don't think that she puts a werewolf into her story lightly. And I think that's where she really draws strength from is it would be pretty easy to put a werewolf into a story and then kind of just, you know, position them as like this time bomb that you use as a convenient plot device at the end of your book. Don't get me wrong. She uses him as a plot device at the end of Prisoner of Azkaban. Super effectively. <laughs> but she does it super effectively because we, she's built up the mystery to that point. And so as, as you're reading it the first time, it works well on that sort of level of satisfying your curiosity. But going back, it works for you as a reader because you've developed this emotional attachment both to the character and to the situation i think more importantly to the situation because the character is it's easy make a nice character okay but she's she's caused us to develop a sympathy for the situation that when we go back and look at that we realize that she didn't enter into this contract with us lightly that she added the werewolf not just as a plot device but she added it in full consideration of all of the problems that that would pose for the character. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. She definitely, she definitely pay, is paying a lot of respect to like an icon of mythology. Like the, the werewolf shows up in like, from what I understand, like a lot of different places of the world. And it's like a very common thread and a, totally. and a pretty standard horror trope too. So like, it's not like a, an easy thing and it's not an easy it's been done like a million times right so it's not easy to put a brand on it that's your own and she totally was able to do that yeah it's funny i'm now thinking about how this character sort of connects to her character of strike in her uh cormoran strike series in that she makes him an amputee and i think it's a really interesting idea to to compare a, a more and less thoughtful writer in just you could just make a character a war veteran and amputee and then just kind of have that be a detail that differentiates your character and then move on. But she doesn't do that at all. In fact, she's pretty painstaking in demonstrating all of the various ways that Strike's injury causes physical and emotional pain for him. And I think, to me, it demonstrates that across different series and across different situations, she's not exploiting... Even so, obviously it's silly because, you know, being a werewolf is, is a fictional situation, is a fictional scenario, but I think it's important that she, she demonstrates this extreme humanity in treating something so seriously. Oh, absolutely. I have a really lengthy list of honorable mentions that I've thought of, and I'm sure you do too, so I think we should probably, let's, let's tackle some of those. Yeah, why don't you kind of drive the boat on that? Cause my honorable mentions are kind of meh anyway. Okay. I'm going to really go rapid fire and where I feel like I need to just talk about some of the things that I like that she's added to the particular species or creature that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Leprechauns. I like the yep. fake gold thing. Yeah. <laughs> and how mischievous they are. And the middle finger. <laughs> yep. Love all that. We have a particular affinity for leprechauns anyways. True. Centaurs. I think they're pretty much in line with what they're understood to be in most mythologies, like things you'd expect from them, like the shooting arrows. And I think even like stereotypically they are future tellers and seers. So yeah. that's not anything new, I guess, but again, just another example of a creature that is marginalized in wizarding society. And we've already talked about the centaur liaison office, which I love. Well, I think that they're kind of similar to the mer people in their value to the series. Yeah. similar but it shows a community shows the importance of getting along with them i think that they kind of serve a similar purpose yeah and we get to know a couple of them pretty well in forenzy and bane and yeah. ronan mm -hmm. gnomes and denoming gardens <laughs> i just love that like they're tied to gardens still like like a garden yeah. gnome and like mm -hmm. that's another thing like how you might interpret like a painting of a, of a mer person like the the reason that we have like gnome statues in our garden is a callback to the fact that they actually live in gardens. I just think that's so cool. And are much uglier than we picture them, if I recall correctly. Right. That seems to be another theme. Yeah. Trolls. I think, like, she pretty much, like, <laughs> doesn't add much to the trolls here, other than, like, she uses bogeys a lot with them, which is... Yes. They're, like, trolls are basically function as comic relief in these stories. Mm-hmm. Ghouls. Which... <laughs> Are uh, a ghoul doing a, a good impression of a teenage boy with spattergroid? <laughs> <laughs> Giants. 
the I think Giants could kind of fall in a similar camp is not maybe not quite as, as close as werewolves, but like the fact that Hagrid and Madame Maxime are both half giant, it's another example of a non wizarding species that kind of gets shunted aside. Well, I just one quick thing on them too, which is interesting, is I think that her portrayal of giants is an argument for like examining different cultures in a serious way on their own terms because the the rumors about giants being uber violent turn out to be true they are true this this is a culture of of giants who are really violent but that's because the people who are looking at them are interpreting through the lens of their own culture and there are really interesting and compelling giants within that group. So I think that was really cool. Like, I really appreciated that when they met them, it wasn't like, oh, look, the giants are super nice. It was like, no, the giants have a, their own culture, which is super different and requires you to kind of take the time to understand it. I also think that it's cool that Hagrid so often fails, despite his best intentions, to tame or, like, normalize the creatures that he loves dragons, scroots, whatever it is. Yeah. But his persistence pays off because by the end of the series, Grop is like a functioning person. Like everyone said he was crazy, he was a lunatic, but like it's it's really nice that eventually like his love of creatures in this case pays off when anyone else would have left Grop in the mountains. It's really sweet. But Yeah, agreed. I think I might lobby for them to actually be on the list. Giants, maybe, when we're done with this. But continuing, pixies, they show up. The Cornish pixies. <laughs> of course. Yep. Goblins. Goblins have a very large role, especially in Deathly Hallows. Yeah. I, I just I, I think it's cool. Like, their association with with gold and banking and armor and weaponry, like, that's all stuff that comes from standard mythology, but... And it's, it's, it's kind of similar to what you said with, with giants, where, like, a lot of the stereotypes that people espouse in these books kind of have roots, and you see that, like, with the way that they interact with Griphook and some of the other goblins in these stories, but... Yep. The Sphinx? Yeah, I love the Sphinx. Very cool. <laughs> Fairies that only really get mentioned, like, as basically decoration at, like, the Yule Ball... The picture of the hairy fairy is great. Yes, that is very good. I have a I have a strong mental image of that chapter art. Yep, for sure. They never actually encounter a physical one, but the Griffin being the the you know the house crest for Gryffindor. Mm-hmm. These ones are all ones that I thought that she had invented, but she had not. So, Grindylows. Yeah. If we if this list wasn't so stacked, I would. I would I would probably want them on the list. I I think just for Zaglindy Lows. <laughs> I just think they're cool and yeah. And they just I don't know. They seemed so like originally created that it makes me happy that she pulled this from. I think it's English mythology here, but yeah. The Hinky Punk, which are basically like these like gas type like lantern wielding things that hang out in bogs. And what I love about them is that in the obstacle course that Lupin puts together for their defense against the dark arts exam, Hermione, I think wanders into a bog accidentally and then like gets frightened by a bog art when it it poses as someone that tells her that she's going to fail all of her exams. Like it's just that it's fun to remember that the Kappa which is another one that Lupin tells him about. It's a water demon that basically looks like a scaly monkey, mm-hmm. which is Japanese in origin. I think it's so cool. Oh, cool. Yep. Also from that class, red caps. They're basically yep. like little gremlins. They show up when there's blood, right? Yeah. So they hang out in like dungeons and, and things like that. Yeah. Really cool. You already mentioned the cockatrice, which is a dragon with a rooster's head. <laughs> <laughs> This is one of my favorites, Kelpies. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the Kelpies. They get brought up a couple of times. First, when <laughs> Hagrid mentions that there's a Kelpie that he needs to get out of a well, and Gilderoy Lockhart <laughs> tries to tell him how to do it, and Hagrid gets really irritated. Kelpies, by the way, are like like big horse, like water creatures. The Another time they come up is Harry, when he's at the end of Half-Blood Prince, when he goes to the, the cave lake. He imagines that it might be full of things like Kelpies. And then this is out of the Fantastic Beast novel, but they call it the Loch Ness Kelpie. Basically, she is pretending that the Loch Ness monster is actually just a very large Kelpie, which I I 
fucking love. That feels very like her. And then the last one, this is a deep, deep, deep one. Part of the ingredient list for Polyjuice Potion is a bicorn horn. I'm so glad the bicorns came up too. Yes. Yeah. The bicorn is an actual mythological creature that I don't know much about. I think they're like half cow, half something else. Half leopard or something. It was a weird combination. Yeah. But, like, just to slide that in there as, like, a throwaway ingredient and polyjuice potion. Complete throwaway, but but not a throwaway because it does, you have to remember the the potion because later on it comes up as, like, a little hint here and there with Snape, like, ooh, you was doing powdered, you know, bicorn, yep. and you're like, what? Yeah. But you're like, your brain, your brain says, oh, I remember that from something. Yep. Yeah. The last one I had was, like, the winged horses that fly the Bobatons carriage. Yeah. The Abraxans. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then the... Uh, Only single malt whiskey, baby. That's right. And one that I think doesn't count, because I think these creatures actually exist, though not as friendly as the one in these novels, <laughs> is the giant squid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. The giant squid feels like... If it, if it were... If it counted... Which I don't think it does. It would be high on this list, because yes. I love that freaking giant squid. Always basking in the shallows. I love the image of the squid, like, on a nice summer day, relaxing just as the students do. Like, they're on the bank, like, reading a book or something, yeah. and he's just lazily, like, waving his tentacles out of the water to catch some sun. It's it's a That is a magical image. Yeah, absolutely. Those were all of my honorable mentions. Yeah, you hit them all. Cool. Let's let's. I don't think we have to talk too much about this. I think there are a few things that I'd like to to shuffle a little bit. Yeah, I think the hippogriff should move up. Okay, fair for the, for the reasons I had discussed. I think, I think if I, if I got to choose, I would move Vila up a little bit too. I think like she should get points for the hippogriff and the Vila for like so effectively digging into mythology that we didn't think for a moment that she hadn't made them up. I think she should get mm-hmm. some points for that. As far as, like, ones, the only one I'd really want seriously discussed being on here are Giants, because I think she provides, like, a pretty, a, a pretty well, uh, she does a good job of making them her own. I don't know exactly what I would take off to put Giants on here. I might consider just swapping them in for merpeople, because I think they, we, like we said, there's a couple of different species that serve somewhat similar roles. Yeah, but I don't want to take merpeople off, because I think that, the way that they differ from our popular imagination of them is important. We can we can just let's, we can leave giants as a, as a really strong number eleven. Okay. Yeah, I would. I think I if I had to. I think I would move Phoenix up to number one because I think like she definitely has an affinity for that particular animal. Although obviously, like the exploration of that is not as subtle as the werewolf. I think the werewolf also like not that it, it's not that it doesn't count. I think it absolutely counts, but like that so much of what we love about the werewolf is the human aspects of it whereas like for a lot of these creatures they're more strictly speaking beasts and like i don't think for a second that should disqualify the werewolf i just think maybe moves it out of our number one spot does that like does that make sense i think that's reasonable i think that i think ultimately the humanity slash whatever not humanity the thingness like the the the, I guess the essential, I mean, all of these things are sort of human centric, like personality, like the, the central goodness or, or thingness of these creatures is what she's trying to get at. So I think the individuality of them, I don't know. The, so I think that the werewolf being focused a little more on that than on its creature phase is consistent with what she's trying to get at. But I think you're probably right. On a strictly creature-oriented list, I think it probably suffers slightly for that. But I would, I would still feel good at number two. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think, I think I would go Phoenix, then Werewolf, then, then, then Bogart. I think I would. And then would you go Hippogriff four? I think I would. Okay. And then how do you feel about doing a quick little, uh, classic creatures dragon basilisk five six then hitting vila yes i like that and then that would put our bottom three is mer people unicorns and three-headed doves i think that feels that feels like a good a good mix of location like i think that's a i think that's a good setup for this i do too so 
I mean, I guess then what we've done here is constructed a top 10 list of the second quadrant of our three-part podcast. It feels like we may have, we may, we're 66.7% through our quadrants. You're, you're losing me with the math. Um, I thought I was keeping up with the quad, the quadrant, so if we could just take it a little slow, that'd be great. All right, so we, we've done two of the three quadrants, I suppose, is okay. what, what one might okay. say. Okay, yeah. Yes. Do you want to recap them, and then we'll get the fuck out of here? I'll recap, uh. Them. Okay. All right. Uh, at number 10, the three-headed dog, which, strictly speaking, we're not quite sure as a species. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It may just be some weird hybrid. Uh, the three-headed dog. Number nine, the purest and most innocent of creatures, the unicorn. Number eight, those scaly bastards, the people. Number seven, those beautiful bastards, the vila. Number six, the basilisk. Number five... The dragon in its many forms. Number four, the noble hippogriff. Number three, the ever-changing and terrifying Boggart. Number two, the deeply sympathetic and tortured werewolf. And number one, the beautiful, the magical, the flaming the phoenix. Wonderful, Michael. That was good. That was a good time. I think at the beginning of this podcast, we said that this would probably be one of our shorter ones. And yeah, yet, it didn't turn out to be that way. Yeah, here we are. All right. Here we are. <laughs> In that case, I will bid you adieu, and I will see you next week if you are still up for it. I'm keen, and I hope the listeners are. Yeah, me too. <laughs> see you, buddy. All righty, friends. That was our top 10 for this week, but now we'd love to hear your top 10. So please check us out on all of our available social media outlets, traditional outlets, whatever outlets we have. Check us out on Twitter at Top10KM. That's all spelled out, Top10KM. Our email, Top10KM, spelled the same way, at gmail.com. Or our site, Top10KM.podbean.com. All forms of communication accepted, except for serial killer notes. Please don't send us any of those. If you like the pod, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never have to miss an episode of Top 10 ever again. If you didn't like it, please tell us why. We'll try to make the show better. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod, and our artwork was created by Erin Sant. You can check out her stuff at Sant Design on Instagram. Alrighty, goons. We'll see you next week.